Hello and welcome to the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. Jeff Riley will be the new Massachusetts Commissioner of Elementary and Secondary Education. The State Board of Education recommended him for the post. And Jeff Riley joins us here on the podcast. Welcome, Jeff, and uh, congratulations. Thank you. Good morning. And so, Jeff, there was, during the search and the interview process, a huge focus on the achievement gap in Massachusetts, on students, uh, really like many of those in Lawrence, where you've been working now for, for six years, who've not had the sort of success seen in wealthier communities, uh, you know, that has made the state really a national leader on, on achievement overall. Uh, so 25 years after passage of the big 1993 education reform law here, the achievement gap seems uh, you know, like an almost intractable problem that we're still dealing with. What, what, what should we be doing about it? Yeah, I think you're right. I think um, Massachusetts clearly has been a leader uh, in the country in education, usually ranked number one or two uh, throughout the nation. Uh, however, when you dig deeper into the data, what you see is we do have these achievement gaps that remain. And I feel like we have a moral obligation to try to address those. And, you know, I've spent my career, most of, the, most of my career, uh, working in urban settings uh, and trying to close those achievement gaps. And in Lawrence, we've been lucky enough to, you know, raise the graduation rate substantially by 20 points. Uh, drop, the, cut, uh, the dropout rate's been cut in half. And our proficiency levels are at all-time highs. Uh, but we still have a lot of work to do, right? And what we know... Uh, what the research tells us is that these achievement gaps start well before kids come to school. Uh, when we see uh, low-income students are hearing 30 million fewer words uh, than more affluent than their more affluent peers. Uh, By the time they but, get to kindergarten, right? Yeah, well before that even. So, so the gap has already started. So what we have to do is try to make up ground. And uh, there's nothing wrong with the kids, and we can do it. We just have to figure out how can we get everyone together to really focus on this problem. So let's just sort of rewind the story a little bit for, for listeners to talk about Lawrence, uh, where you've been the state-appointed receiver uh, for the last six years. And so this was a district that was deeply troubled, you know, with very low, chronically low student achievement, high dropout rates, low, uh, low high school graduation, a succession, sort of revolving door of superintendents, uh, the last one ended up in jail. In fact, that's where that revolving door led. So this was, this was really probably the most distressed district in the state, and it's for that reason that the state exercised these authorities to really to go in and essentially take over the district, appointed you receiver, and 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 you've been careful to say that you know along with the success that you've had that the work isn't isn't done there, but. But there's still been, you know, real progress there, and it and it's really that progress and your work on the ground that I think that the state board of education recognized and and sort of was hoping was kind of a signal of of what would be possible uh, more broadly. So can you just talk a little bit about what what exactly you really did in Lawrence, how you approached that problem, you know, with the the the, the wide latitude you were given? Sure. So when I first came, uh, obviously there was a lot of negativity surrounding the district. Um, there was a media article at the time that called Lawrence the city of the damned. And our I remember it. Our graduation rates were about 50%. Uh, our dropout rates were well over 10. Um, and there was a lot of dysfunction. And uh, what I did when I first came is I actually took the first six months to talk to everyone 
and kind of assess the situation. What I found was there was actually a lot of assets in Lawrence. And so what we tried to do was build a plan that was collaborative in nature and try to work with people um, from many different constituencies. Uh, and once we started getting people on board, uh, we started seeing real progress. And that included parents, students, outside stakeholders uh, from outside the city, as well as a lot of our partners from inside the city. And, uh, you know, there was just a sense that you're not going to talk about Lawrence like this. We can and will do better. And they have. And what were the sort of, what would you sort of point to as sort of the main elements that, that were kind of put in place in terms of sort of restructuring how the schools operate or sort of how you dealt with kind of personnel issues? Sure. So I had the ability, if I so chose, to kind of replace or fire all the teachers. And what I actually found was is that the teaching core was the strength in Lawrence. And while we looked at kind of the bottom 10% of teachers, uh, the real failure, in my opinion, was in the leadership ranks, particularly at the principal ranks. And so we wound up replacing about half of the leaders in Lawrence. Uh, at the same time, we brought the parents back into the school system. They, in many cases, had been kind of shut out from their kids' education, and that's something you can't do. And so we have this um, incredibly functioning PTO President's Council now, where there's a president from every school that comes and meets with me on a bi-monthly basis. Um, and and try to get some buy-in from them. Certainly, we expanded the school day. We felt like uh, we needed more time for our kids um, for additional instruction, but not just to kind of fix gaps, mm -hmm. but also to add back what I call opportunity gap issues, which are arts and enrichment, sports, debate league, theater, you know, things that kids love to go to school for. And so we really put an emphasis on that and to try to provide a holistic education for our kids. Mm -hmm. And so when we did that, we started to see things improve. Mm -hmm. And you, uh, I mean, there was sort of a different idea also of kind of the relationship between how a district office and individual schools would work. Uh, talk a little about, about that, would you? So I think uh, I, I was a principal in a few places um, during my career, and, and what I used to tell people is 90% of my job as a principal is to work for and with my teachers so they can just teach. Right, whether I have to do lunch duty, if I have to do discipline issues, got to make sure they get the materials they need, support the teachers in their craft. When I went to the district level, I kind of believed in that supportive model too. A lot of times districts in America uh, have this attitude like, you work for us. And what I said to my people is, no, 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 we work for the schools. And so we're going to push the autonomy down to the schools. We're going to hold them accountable, but we are going to become a support mechanism for them uh, so that when they need help, we're going to help them so they can do their jobs. And, uh, I mean, it's been sort of termed in some uh, papers uh, writing about this earned autonomy or this idea of letting, you know, letting schools have more control over, uh, over how, they, how they operate uh, without those kind of dictates from the, from the central office. I think that's right. It's, you know, we talk a lot about differentiating instruction in education, the idea that we really have to kind of personalize <laughs> learning for each unique kid. What we try to do is differentiate supports. So if you're a high-flying school, you're doing really well, we're going to kind of get out of your way and let you do your thing. On the other hand, if you're not doing so well, we're going to be more intensive in our support. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so what about the sort of structure in Lawrence or, or, or this way of trying to sort of unleash schools? Uh, you, you know, you had uh, unlimited sort of authority to, to structure things in that way. Uh, but what can you take from that and, and see uh, the lessons that can be applied more broadly uh, across the state? 
Well, I mean, I think the idea of differentiating supports for districts is important. Um, with that said, much like I did in Lawrence, I'm really going to take some time to talk to all stakeholders and listen uh, to the educational community about what's next. I mean, if there is one theme you will see from me going forward, it's probably about the real need to get back to supporting our teachers and celebrating them. And I think we've done a lot of kind of things on systems and structures, but we probably need to get back to focusing on quality instruction, good teaching, and making sure that our teachers have what they need. Mm-hmm. I mean, another thing that I, is sort of uh, along the lines of this sort of focus on schools that I, I'm reminded of is you talked about going back to your time in Boston. You were a principal at, at, at a middle school here, the Edwards Middle School, that showed some, some strong results during your time there. And I know you've said that uh, in order to do a lot of that, you spent a lot of your time trying to evade the, the central office. So I guess, I, uh, you know, and I think a lot of people, you know, probably react sympathetically to that because, again, this idea that, that uh, you know, that, that sort of big bureaucratic structures can get in the way of what's going on at the school level I think resonates with people. But, but at the same time, you're now, uh, you're now going to be essentially the chief uh, bureaucrat for the whole state education system. Sure. So, so a guy who's kind of recoiled at, at the bureaucracy is now in charge of it. Well, I mean, I'm not sure, you know, I completely recoiled. What I would say is, much like I've done in my tenure, when you have folks that are doing well and their school or their school system is doing well, you've got to give your trust to them and really get out of their way. At the same token, if you're not doing well, you've got to, you know, be involved and make sure that that kids are getting what they need. And so I think there is a place for that in a, in a bureaucracy as large as Massachusetts where we don't do a one-size-fits-all model, but we really try to give each individual community what they need. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm curious a little bit about just how, how you started in, in the education field. I know that, uh, you know, the sort of thumbnail story is that you, uh, you, you started, as, you know, as a lot of people of that era did uh, through this, the program Teach for America, uh, which brings, you know, bright, young, recent college graduates in to teach for a couple of years, usually in, in, in schools, you know, troubled schools, schools that are struggling with achievement. Um, you know, the knock is that sort of often people kind of pass through there on their way to some other career pursuit. So when you, when you talk about when you went into that, what, what led you to apply for Teach for America and what was that experience like? And, and did you go into it with this idea that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I have a passion for education and this is what I'm going to make my life? Or did you, were you not really sure and did something change during that time? You know, I think I was at a place uh, after college where I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. Uh, I had, if I read you were a philosophy major, <laughs> right? That, that points you toward, uh, not I'm not a lot sure of exactly philosophy what, jobs, yeah. right? Uh, What's the career path for that? Yeah, well, I think law school was the career path, right? I had a job offer mm-hmm. in Los Angeles mm. uh, as a law clerk uh, at the time, but I also had applied to this program. Um, and when I got into the program, I turned down the law clerk position because I wanted to do this. And I had had some experience working in camps with kids and sports and different things uh, through my time in high school. And so I went to Baltimore City and taught for three years. Uh, and I really just kind of caught the bug and stayed in education, right? I got a, a degree in counseling. Uh, I was a counselor for a while. I was an assistant principal. Then I was a principal. Then I was a deputy. Uh, and so I've just been in education for the last 25 years, um, really focusing on that. And... Um and so, as you said, there's been a lot of talk about 
some of the friction in education, and, and, and you've, you've been pretty passionate about the, the need for us to try to heal some of those wounds. How, uh, how do you, I mean, what, what do you see, what are the sources of this friction? You've got people who've been, you know, passionate about charter schools, people who thought they were, you know, the ruin of, of our education system, people who think, uh, you know, testing, you know, is a critical part of what we do, and people who would just as soon, you know, you know, throw it all overboard. Yeah, I think things have really become polarized in the educational world in Massachusetts over the last four or five years. And uh, while there was a lot of great gains made during kind of the education reform era that started in 1993, uh, there was also this tension between how can we fix some of these achievement and opportunity gaps. And I think there's passion on all sides. uh, And it got really heated and and it became real divisive and... um, almost warlike in many ways. And I think people are kind of burnt out from that. I think people are looking to heal. People are looking to come back together and to figure out what's next in education. We've been a leader in this country as a state um, for figuring out how to bring really strong educational experiences for our kids. I think the time is now to bring folks back together to figure out what's next. The world's going to look very different uh, 20, 30, 50 years from now uh, than it looks today. And are we preparing our kids for that world? I think we need to have those discussions. Mm-hmm. So just in, in, that, in the context of these kind of frictions or wars, you know, take an issue like testing, which you know, has uh, been the focus of a big debate. It's certainly been an essential part of the education reform effort here. I think supporters would say it was never meant to be the central part of it. Uh, but critics say it has sort of taken over uh, schools in a harmful way. And you, you've been a bit critical of the role that it's played and, and said you've seen the, the way, kind of maybe perversely, that it has sort of narrowed the focus of, uh, uh, of the curriculum in some schools. So what's the right way for us to sort of go forward to deal with it or, you know, sort of not throw the baby out with the bathwater and not sort of, uh, you know, discard this idea that we're going to kind of measure where schools and kids are at and have some accountability, but not, but not have it have these effects that you and others have been uh, concerned about? So, I mean, first and foremost, I am a believer in test scores. I remember, particularly in urban communities, when there was no test, and sometimes the quality of instruction was not up to par. By making sure that all of our kids, my kids go to the Boston Public Schools, I want to make sure my kids have the same Uh, opportunities as a kid in Weston or Winchester and have access to that curriculum. So I believe in testing. At the same time, the pendulum swung a little far where people became so obsessed with testing that we forgot about things like arts and enrichment. And, you know, I come at this first and foremost as a parent, and I ask myself, what do I want for my kid to be a fully developed child? You know, and I think I want them to have a great academic experience, but I also want them to have opportunities in theater arts or sports, you know, and my kids to be happy going to school and just kind of maximize their development. And so, you know, I'm, I guess I'd say I'm a moderate when it comes to these things. Uh, and we as a community, I think, really need to kind of reflect on what is next in the area of accountability? And uh, that term moderate is uh, one I, I know uh, in your interview for the, for the commissioner's job, uh, you use that in, in reference to charter schools as well. I mean, you prefaced it saying that Massachusetts clearly has what's recognized as the highest performing charter sector in the country, yet you sort of described yourself as a moderate on that issue. Um, what, what's the, what does that mean to you? 
You know, I, I think I have an interesting background. My, my great-grandfather was president of uh, the American Federation of Labor, started out as a shoemaker, um, and rose to that post. Oh, yeah. Uh, on the same token, many of my friends run charter schools, right? And I think at the end of the day, parents don't really care about the label. They just want a good school for their kid. And so anybody that's trying to get good results for city kids, I'm in favor of. And the question is, what can we do next to kind of um, get past a lot of the negativity and work together on behalf of kids. Mm -hmm. And what are, uh, but people have really uh, looked at the charter schools here and the success they've had. What do you, what do you take from 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 what they've done that you think has been, uh, you know, uh, crucial to that success? Then that might might be again. Uh, transferable or things that we could we could carry over into yeah. what we do more broadly. I'm not sure people realize that, you know, the charter sectors in a, the country has wide variety. Right. But in Massachusetts, it is clearly the leader in the whole country. I mean, it's a really strong sector. And what I see when I visit charter schools is I see kind of a, a relentless focus on quality instruction, and I see extra time. Right. I think time plays a role. It's It can't be just time for time's sake. I've often said that a longer school day is important, but only if the time is used well. Uh, we've also seen people try to have longer school days and the time is not used well, and so nothing right. changes. Right, it's, it's not a cure or a magic bullet. Right. But it's been sort of indispensable, a lot of charter leaders would say, to, to getting kids, especially kids who are far behind, up to speed, and and as you say, it's been you know one of the kind of pillars of, of the of the model in Lawrence that you thought was was critical for that district. Yeah, I think it's a key, it's been a key lever for us in Lawrence, and all the way back when I was a principal in the Boston Public Schools, right? We had a longer school day, we had an expanded learning time school, where we were able to provide this kind of holistic education for our kids, close achievement gaps while also providing them with these experiences, which would close opportunity gaps. Mm -hmm. Uh, another thing I'm uh, I'm interested in hearing a little about that you've done in Lawrence is uh, uh, something that you, that you all have labeled acceleration academies. Uh, sure. Can you just describe a little what those are? Because that has I, I've read some some reports that have uh, have zeroed in on those as being among the things that have been identified as the most uh, crucial to some of the gains students have, have seen. So I think a lot of time when people think about uh, expanded learning time, they think about a longer school day where they think about a longer school year. Um, this is kind of a different kind of time usage where we ask kids to give up their vacations, either in February or April, uh, to get extra support in small classrooms, usually about 10 to 1. We get the best teachers we can find. We use data to kind of figure out where the kids' gaps are, and we try to fill in those gaps. If a kid's in sixth grade and needs to know stem and leaf plot and area and perimeter, we're going to make sure that the teacher knows that these 10 kids are going to learn these skills by the end of uh, the week. And people ask, well, what is a week of instruction going to do? Right. But it's actually about 30 hours of direct instruction with a great teacher. And if you think about a kid going to high school and has one hour of math a day, uh, when you think about 30 hours, that's more than a month of instruction with a really solid teacher. It doesn't surprise me, although it surprised other people, that it is. it does have um, the ability to really make strong gains for kids. And, and, and kids would volunteer or would, would, would they weren't mandated to give up their vacation? We, we, last year we had almost 3,000 kids give up their February or April vacation. Uh, we do do fun things for the kids, right, uh, incentive-based program, and, and we try to make it fun for them, but we've had to turn kids away. Um, I mean, that's pretty remarkable, and, and, and again, given that it, it seems like something that can make such a difference for kids that are far behind, um, 
again, I, I keep wondering that there's been some r really interesting things and innovative things in Lawrence. Now, they can't be just exported writ large across the state. There just isn't the authority to do that. But, but uh, I mean, isn't part of what you, you might want to do as commissioner sort of be kind of, you know, inspired districts to, I guess, think, think outside the box a bit. And when you say we need to think about schools, you know, for the 21st century and for what kids are going to need, uh, you know, it, it probably means something different than just the sort of six, six and a half hour day structure that, that you know, the kind of uh, cookie cutter uh, model that every kid goes through. And that, and, that, and that hasn't, in fact, really done the trick for, for uh, a, a big swath of kids. I think we're entering into a time when we can actually have those conversations, and that's great. So whether it's with students, parents, principals, superintendents, everyone needs to kind of have a seat at the table to talk about how can we change things to make them better. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, I guess sort of in this sort of uh, peacemaking role you, you've talked about uh, uh, occupying what you call sort of the radical center. So... Uh, the center I get. What, what do you, what's radical about that? <laughs> I, I think what's radical about the radical center is not just in education, but in the country we live in, um, partisan politics have taken over, and there's been a lot of energy and noise and um, attention given to people at either end of the spectrum, when I honestly believe there's a lot of people in the middle, kind of the silent majority, that need to kind of get back involved and say, enough of this silliness. Let's work together on behalf of kids. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, one big issue that's been looming uh, over school districts the last few years that we've heard a lot about is funding. There was a big review done. The Foundation Budget Review Commission uh, uh, was the sort of fancy term for it. But the, the bottom line conclusion from it was that schools aren't getting adequate funding anymore. The idea that the formula that was sort of put in place back with the 93 law has kind of gone out of whack. Uh, due to a lot of different factors, it, the story gets complicated. But the bottom line has been this sense that that uh, we're asking a lot of schools, but that we haven't quite kept up with that commitment. The Ed Reform Law was kind of predicated on these two big pillars, that we were going to really fund schools adequately and ensure that all kids had access to an adequately funded education, and we were going to hold schools accountable for results in a way that we'd never done before. And people say, we're still holding them accountable, but but we're kind of lagging a little on the funding. I mean, you've been, uh, you've raised that, uh, you know, in your interviews. I know I've heard that, you know, when you've gone before the board in your role as Lawrence receiver, you've, you've, you've uh, not been shy about saying that particularly uh, places like Lawrence, the so-called gateway cities, are really struggling uh, under, the, under the, uh, the, the budgets they're getting. So where do we go on that? So I think I'm pragmatic when it comes to this issue. I mean, I recognize that the state revenues haven't come in as high as the people had hoped for. Maybe we are at the point where they will start getting better, right. and the legislature will take up the charge. Maybe. Some are looking to this ballot question, millionaire's tax, that may be on the ballot in the fall. It's unclear. So yeah. I mean, I think what I've said to people is, we're going to wait for that to play out. But what can we do in the meantime, right, to really make changes for kids? In Lawrence... You know, the, the city was not a wealthy city. Most cities give about 20% over the baseline minimum that they're required to. Lawrence always funds at the baseline. So we are 14000 per kid. You know, uh, Boston might be 19000 per kid. Cambridge might be 28000 per kid. So we didn't have the resources to work with. So the question is, 
okay, we're not going to be getting more resources. What can we do to be as efficient as possible and to really use our resources well? When you talk about a budgeting situation, you kind of fund your priority areas and you really have to be careful where your dollars go. So I think within the state, we can look at ways to find additional resources uh, in the short term to support things like the achievement gap uh, and communities that are more struggling. Uh, and in the long term, we've got to wait to see what happens on Beacon Hill. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, back to this idea of sort of trying to draw from things that uh, that are done in in Lawrence and in other cities. There's uh, been an effort now in Springfield, the so-called empowerment zone, which is not full receivership or state takeover, but it's been an effort uh, by folks there to sort of get ahead of the accountability curve. Some schools that were probably in danger of being taken over by the state uh, were instead folded into a somewhat, you know, an autonomous zone that's still within the schools but has a lot of, of freedom from the, from the district. Uh, I mean, what do, you, what do you make of that model? Again, as sort of a way to think outside the box and, 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 and try to, uh, you know, avoid that, you know, that sort of cliched idea of just doing the same thing over and over again and thinking we're going to get a different result. So that's sort of, I think, the, the sort of premise of that is that we need to try something different. And the superintendent there has been supportive as well of that idea. So, you know, what I would say is uh, when you do receiverships, right, uh, it, it, and they've been done in different places across the country, and a lot of times they haven't worked because they're kind of seemed as armed occupations. Right, right. And I would argue why we've had some success in Lawrence is because it was a collaborative effort, right? I mean, I think you look at the number of uh, people that have been hired from Lawrence in the last six years that actually live in Lawrence, right? We more than doubled the number of Latino teachers. Like, we did it as a community together. And I think that collaborative spirit is key. And so when you talk about the Springfield Empowerment Zone, this was based on that collaboration, which is really important. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a positive, powerful thing, right? I mean, the, the teachers union voted for the contract. I think it was, you know, 92 to 8 or, or whatever it was. And so there's a real sense of ownership and buy-in, right? And when you have that, I think you can get a lot more done. If you enlist people in the process and they feel like they're stakeholders, you can actually get a lot more done doing things with people, not doing things to people. And so that there, there might be room or ways to see those kind of uh, partnerships or models, do you think? Uh, I think uh, it's possible. I mean, I, you know, we, we've heard positive things out of the Springfield Empowerment Zone. You know, uh, we'll be watching that closely. And, uh, but the idea of collaboration, I think, is key to all things in education. All right. Well, uh, I want to thank you, Jeff Riley, for coming in to speak with us. Thanks for having me. And, uh, and uh, best of luck uh, in the new role. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. And you have been listening to another installment of the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. Listen to us here every week. Subscribe via SoundCloud or iTunes. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Well, we got no choice.